These last three weeks, I've been trying to do something since the, the first of the year uh, to try to set up the year for us because each new year, um, you know, you just want to see that you made some tracks, you know, by, uh, by November, December, that you were able to get someplace that you really wanted to go. And part of that is really setting the stage for how we're going to do the searching. You know, I've often said in here, if we can do one thing at the effect for anybody who joins us, which is to put a red X over the treasure on your map, that way you can actually be digging towards something and not just digging holes, that would be a great thing, a great service for us to do. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to more and more securely show you where the X is on the map so that your work, everything that you do, is geared toward and moving toward a destination that you would really like to reach. So three weeks ago, um, talked about making friends with contradiction, oh, making friends with paradox, not resisting it, not seeing it as something that is wrong, not seeing it as something that needs to be resolved, but actually making friends with it and realizing that life is contradiction, contradictory. Life is paradoxical. Life is mysterious. There is going to be no way around that. It doesn't get resolved. Can we learn to live with that? Can we learn to learn from that? Which is really the key. But we're not going to do anything as long as we're resisting it. We're not going to do anything if, as long as we are pretending that we can resolve by falling down on one side or another of a complex issue or a mysterious issue or a paradoxical issue. To let that paradox stand takes us into the next Sunday when we were talking about learning to trust mystery. And not just trust it, but learn to love it. Mystery is so incredibly important to life. Without mystery, what would life be like? Would life even be worth playing, living, if there weren't mystery to it? And we need to understand that mystery, Richard Rohr has a great way of putting this. He says, mystery is not something that you cannot know. Mystery is endless knowability. Now, what the heck does that mean, right? It's not something that you can't understand. It's something that you are going to understand endlessly. What he's talking about is that mystery is always going to be unfolding. There's never a time that it's not going to be unfolding. But there's also never going to be a time where we just say, we got it, and it's all over, and we're done, and we can sit on a cloud and play a harp for the rest of eternity. It doesn't work that way. It's endless knowability. It's understanding endlessly. It's always falling deeper into an unfolding truth. That's what we're talking about. Can you learn to love that? Can you see how that invigorates and makes life meaningful? That's what we're talking about. And then finally, can we engage those paradoxes? Can we engage that contradiction? And we were talking specifically about contemplation and action. Can we engage both of those? Can we bring those both to bear? Can we find a balance in the middle where we are spending enough interior time that we can infuse and inform the choices that we make in our action? Can we fight the interior revolution first so that we are balanced and able to move outward and fight the exterior revolution however you want to do it? but now in a way where love is the basis of your decisions and you can truly be a part of the solution and not just a part of the problem. So this is where we've been for the last three weeks, and it's, this stuff is absolutely fundamental. I can't tell you how important it is to understand these concepts first so that you can start to move into them. 
Because without accepting paradox, without accepting this uncertainty in life, there is no further progress along a spiritual path. There's certainly no further progress along Jesus' way. This is the ticket in the door. This is what Jesus is trying to get across from us. You know, there's a great story comes out of Zen Buddhism where the disciples of a Zen master were going over to his house to visit him. And when they get there, he's on all fours in front of his house, like crawling around and, and searching for something. And so they come and say, what's, what's wrong? What happened? Well, I lost something of great value, and I'm trying to find it. So they all jump in, and they want to find, they want to help him, right? So they're all crawling around on hands and knees you know, on the front lawn and looking for this thing that was lost. But after a while, they start to get frustrated. And they say, Master, do you remember the last time that you had it? Where did you lose it? He goes, oh, inside the house. (laughs) Well, then what are we doing out here? Because the light's so much better out here. (laughs) Okay, you're all looking at me like, okay, that's funny, but what does it mean? (laughs) What's the point? You know, the point is, that we all want to search where we're comfortable. We all want to search how we're comfortable. We want to search where the light is good, right? In our strong suit, under good conditions. And most importantly, we want to do this search where it feels like it's under our control. You see what he was trying to teach his disciples? See, we want to dictate the form of the search. We want to dictate the terms of the search. And not only that, we even want to dictate the nature of the thing that we're searching for. Don't we do this over and over again? Who is this God we're searching for? By and large, we've remade him in our own image. We've limited him to something that we can understand, that we can put in these finite noggins that we can put edges around and handles on so that we can carry and understand and feel like we're in control. To try to just blow all that out and admit that this God is so mysterious that there's no way that we could contain him, her. This is what we're doing. We're trying to search where the light is good instead of searching where we actually need to go. We want to imagine that we can be certain about the answers that we're going to receive. And we want to, we want this so badly that we're going to pretend that we can make one right and all the others wrong. And we can stand on that. We want to maintain, in other words, a dualistic worldview that we talked about over these last couple of weeks, where we set the world up with two opposing forces. One is right, one is wrong, one is good, one is evil, one is male, one is female, one is Republican, one is Democrat, you name it, whatever it happens to be. But we set the world up with these dualisms. And then we proceed as if we can be certain about what's right and what's wrong so that we can keep searching where the light is good. Setting up these opposites in a world that Jesus was here to show us is one. Not two, not many things, but one. The world Life, all experience, is one thing. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. But the catch is that this oneness can only be seen if we're willing to search in the house where the light is not good. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to get out 
of control? Are we willing to start trusting a process and trusting spiritual muscles that we cannot see? See, that's scary for us. To trust a process that we don't know exactly where it's leading. I read the famous prayer by Thomas Merton in the, in the meditation of the worship. And I don't know where I'm going. I don't know if I'm pleasing you. I have no idea what I'm doing. But I choose to believe that my desire to please you is in and of itself pleasing to you. And I'm going to stand on that. See, that's a dive into mystery. That's a willingness to go forward and search in the house where the light is not good. This is the prerequisite to everything that Jesus is trying to tell us. Are we willing to get out of control and trust spiritual muscles that we can't see? You know, I've told you this analogy before, but I'm going to tell you again because it works so well. You know, years and years ago when I was trying to learn how to sing, I had a singing teacher. And once again, you know, when you're playing guitar, you can look at your hands. You can see what you're doing, right? Piano, same thing. You can see what you're doing. When you're singing, you're dealing with muscles that are inside your throat that you can't see. You're dealing with muscles in your abdomen that you can't see. How is it that you're going to activate, use, and control muscles when you can't see them? You can't see what they're doing. You can't get a handle on it. So what he told me was, you know, because you can explain yourself to death. You know, talk about your larynx, talk about your vocal folds, talk about all this stuff, and you can know all the anatomy. But until you've experienced what it feels like to actually use these muscles in a way that produces a tone, you're lost. So he said, I'll tell you what, you just sing and I'm going to listen. And when I hear you making a tone that is the correct kind of tone, I'm going to stop you and I'm going to tell you, okay, what did that feel like? He says, memorize the sensations and recreate the sensations, which will then recreate the proper tone. Kind of an indirect way of going about it, right? But what else can you do? How else can you do this when you can't see the muscles? So you're trying to learn the sensation of something that can't be expressed, something that you can't see. You can only experience it. You can only feel it and then memorize it and bring it into muscle memory so it's there for you. Do you see where I'm going with, with this on a spiritual level? It's the same thing. You're dealing with spiritual muscles that you can't see. You can't express them. The more you try to express them, the more you simply get lost. Last Tuesday, it was hilarious. Um, one of our, our members who's in Northern California on, on our, our Zoom conversations call was talking about a book that she read called God Can't. God Can't, which, of course, raises the hackles on the back of our heads if you were... Um, raised in the Baltimore Catechism as a Catholic the way I was. But at any rate, the whole idea was prayer. How does prayer work? What's our relationship to God? What's our relationship to prayer? Why does God seem to answer prayer sometimes and not other times? And she was trying to express her take on this and, and why it was so important for her to try to figure out. And she was getting out there. She used ism a lot. Ism. <laughs> and she was just going further and further out. And I'm just sitting there laughing. And finally she just stopped and says, what are you laughing at? And I said, because you have slammed right up against the edge of what you can express with language. And you're, you're trying to, but you cannot do it. It's just classic. I love it. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you, by the way. But that's what happens to every single one of us. When we try to express these things that are of the Spirit, we just get lost in the language and we do the best we can. And we end up, if we're successful at all, is using metaphor 
using analogy, using figures of speech, using stories. How did Jesus teach? Metaphor, analogy, figures of speech, parables. Because it's the only way you can even get close. You have to try to recreate or evoke the sensation in your listener and then tie that to the truth behind it. It's this indirect way of coming home because you're up against the limits of what we can do rationally at all. I wanted to read a little quote from Albert Einstein who was asked one time whether he was an atheist. And he says, I'm not an atheist, and I don't think that I can call myself a pantheist. You all know what a pantheist is? Well, pan is the... uh, Prefix, that means all or everything or everything in a group. And so pantheism is that everything is God. The whole world is God. In a sense, the entire universe, the way we can experience it, is God's body, if you think. So everything, every tree, every brook, every stone, every animal, every person, everything is God. He's saying, you know, I'm not an atheist. I don't believe there is no God, but I'm also not a pantheist. We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. It does not know how. It does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. I love that. I don't know if you do, but I think it's the utter humility that is being framed here by arguably one of the most intelligent and visionary humans who's ever graced the planet. But the utter humility and the utter futility of rationally understanding God is on display here in this little paragraph. That is someone who is no longer trying to search where the light is good, but willing to go into the house where the light is not so good. Because Einstein realized you can't dictate the terms of the search. They are what they are. They is what they ism, right? That's where we're headed with this. You know, Paul seems to be saying the same thing. Take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, Alex will get that up. It's also in your handouts if you'd rather deal with paper. It's so interesting, you know, as I'm going through and I'm thinking about all this stuff, stuff just shows up. You ever had that, that, uh, that sensation? You know, there's the idea of when you get on the hero's journey, then the guides and the helpers and everyone shows up and they give you tools. And it's like suddenly if you're aware and you're moving forward, suddenly things show up. I had um, a, a woman who found us online Ask me if I have any studies on 1 Corinthians 13, and specifically this uh, passage that I want to read to you right now. And I told her, no, I really don't. I've just never really done 1 Corinthians 13. And then here it is, pop, absolutely relevant. Maybe because she told it to me, it was already in my head, and it just slipped right into place. And so 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 8, love never fails. This is the famous love chapter, right? But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, interesting choice of words, right? The partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. 
think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. See where he's going with this? We can only know in part. We're going to need to grow up into a new kind of knowing. The analogy to a child here is a child growing into an adult, growing into a man or into a woman. But if we're going to look at this spiritually, because this is a a metaphor, this is an analogy that he's setting up, because notice how it connects the two parts of that paragraph. He's talking about love that is everything. He's talking about our rational approach, whether in knowing, understanding, or in prophesying words of God, speaking in tongues, all of this stuff. That is only in part, and that's going to pass away. Then he talks about when he was a child and grew into a man, how he moved from one system to another system. And he's trying to make this spiritual connection, right? So spiritually, what we're going to be talking about here is not necessarily from a child to an adult, but from a rational and dualistic adult to a unitive or non-rational mystic. This is where he's going. And make no mistake, Paul was a mystic. Jesus was a mystic. What is it when Paul goes to the third heaven, is translated to the third heaven, right? And he comes back and he says, I was shown things of which I cannot speak. That's a mystical experience. This is what he's talking about. He's trying to get us off that rational treadmill, that searching in the light over to the side of mystery where we can actually connect with God in a way that we probably didn't even think was possible. Now, when we think about this, this passage, normally we're thinking about death and heaven, aren't we? He says, now at the end there, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That then we always think of on the other side of death, right? Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I am also fully known. We're thinking that we're going to be in this dimly lit room, looking through this dark glass for all our lives, and then we're going to die and something's going to be revealed to us. But I want to remind you that any good Jew is not thinking about the next life. Any good Jew is thinking about this life and the here and now. Kingdom is all about the here and now. The whole context of Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching is here and now. It's not that they didn't believe in a there then, in an afterlife, but it made no never mind. If you just took care of what you were supposed to take care of here, God in his infinite wisdom and justice and mercy, everything would be fine in the next life. And so what he's talking about is right here and now. He says, when the perfect comes, I love that phrase, when the perfect comes, the word he uses there in the Greek is teleos. Same word that we use for the end times or the latest times. It means to complete or to fulfill. It's perfection in the sense of being completely fulfilled, that we've run full circle, we've run through to the end of the age, whatever you want to think of. The word in Aramaic is gemar. Same idea, completion or fulfillment. And so he's talking about here, I believe, when the perfect and complete presence is attained in the moment, that's when you know the truth that Jesus says will make us free. Remember when Jesus talks about, it's going to be in Matthew 7, that's going to come up if we ever get back to the red letter study. 
you know, Lord, Lord. He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to get into the kingdom because there's going to be those, even though they have done great deeds for, for God and they've done this and they've built that, he says, I never knew you. We've never spent time in this perfect moment. We've never spent time when the perfect comes, when everything is connected, when all the thoughts fall away and it's just two entities present to each other without any loss in translation. I think this is what he's talking about. When that perfect moment comes, now we're not seeing through the glass dimly anymore. We are face-to-face spiritually, but it's not rational. It's not something you're going to be able to write in a book later. And if you try to explain it, you're going to be banging up against isms again because there's no way to express it. It's not a rational understanding that we're looking for here. That is what is incomplete. That is what is passing. The experiential knowing, that is what is gemar. That is what is perfect. See, Jesus is trying to grow us up spiritually, get us to see beyond our comfort zone, get to see beyond our need for control, see beyond the control points that we're trying to constantly set, the worldview that that creates. He's trying to get us to stop judging. Again, Matthew 7, right at the top, don't judge. Because every time we judge, what we're really doing is pretending to resolve the paradoxes, the contradictions that we are experiencing in life by making one right, making one wrong, making one good and one evil. We're just creating these categories and dropping these things in rather than letting them be. And each time we do that, each time we judge, each time we make a choice like that to to try to resolve the paradox that we're experiencing, we're reinforcing the spiritual speaking, thinking, and reasoning of a child in Paul's analogy. This world of oneness that Jesus is trying to teach us, this world of unity, kingdom, is not going to be available to us. It's not going to be possible for us as long as we are thinking and reasoning like a child, spiritually speaking. We need to break through into this new unity And when Jesus talks about the narrow gate, also Matthew 7, all this stuff is coming up in Matthew 7, getting a preview here. We think, again, that's about heaven and hell, don't we? Narrow is the way, constricted is the gate that leads to life, and few go by it. Broad is the path to destruction, and most of the people are going to go that way, and we're thinking, okay, hell's going to be overflowing. Heaven's going to have a lot of good real estate available. He's not talking about the afterlife. He's talking about this right here. Few people are going to be willing and able to grow up and grow into this unitive thinking to let go of the dualities because it's so scary. It challenges everything we think we know and everything we think we are. Are you willing to do that? And all of Jesus' teaching and everything that he models is trying to get this across. Let's take a look at a couple of things that he says and see if we can bring this home. At Matthew 13... Starting at verse 24, 
Matthew 13 is a great chapter to just read. It's just parable after parable and saying after saying, trying to get kingdom across. He starts off the chapter with the uh, parable of the sower and the seeds, or the four soils, very famous one. And from right there, he moves into this. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Now, what's a tear? Well, it's like a weed. It's a, it's a false grain. It's not going to produce anything that you can eat. So think of it as a weed. Tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go in and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So Jesus later explains this. He doesn't explain his parables to the, uh, the bulk of the people who are following and listening to his teaching, but to his private few, his uh, closest followers, he explains. And the tares and the wheat are, are uh, analogs for good and evil. Okay, So we, we basically had that figured out anyway, right? So when he's talking about wheat, it's something that's good, it's something that's nurturing, it's something that's fruitful. If it's the tare, which doesn't nurture, is bisha, which means it's unripe, it's evil, it's not going to be ready for prime time. As soon as they hear this, the disciples, of course, want to help in the, in the uh, parable itself. The slaves, the disciples, the followers of the, of the master, they want to help and they want to tear out the weeds, which is analogous to searching outside the house where the light is good, right? They want to do what they're good at. They want to do what they're practiced at. They want to resolve the issue. Can't stand to have those things sitting out in the, in the field together. They want to resolve it. They have judged that the tares are bad and the wheat is good. And they want to dictate the terms of the search. They want to control the search. But the farmer says, no, we're not going to do that. He says, let the contradiction lie. Let the paradox stand. Because what you're judging as evil, what you're judging as of no account, and you want to remove so that you can feel more comfortable with yourself, may actually provide the needed adversity that's going to teach you something. We all know that we grow from adversity. If there were no adversity in life, and you've probably met some people who have had too little adversity in life, and they tend to be a little shallower. They tend not to have the kind of compassion and gravitas. Maybe they're entitled. Who knows? It's adversity that grows us up. If you take that out, you're not going to be able to travel down a path the outcome of which cannot be known until the perfect comes. Do you see how that works? We have to let it stand until the perfect comes, until we have this moment of complete connection. So then we can know. Don't judge in the meantime. You could be taking out things that are absolutely essential for your journey. Don't judge. Become tolerant of the uncertainty. Become tolerant of the humility that that requires, the vulnerability that that requires. And then continuing right on in verse 31, 
He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Okay, if you've read any commentaries on this passage, you know that Jesus takes a lot of hits for this. Because the mustard seed is not the smallest seed of all. There is actually an orchid seed that is microscopic. And uh, a mustard seed is one to two millimeters, and they go into all this detail, right? But what the mustard seed is, is the smallest seed that was typically planted in the farms or the gardens of first century Jews. So for all intents and purposes, it was the smallest seed of all. It's the smallest seed they knew about that they were regularly in experience with. And if you also know a mustard plant, it does not grow into a tree. Not the way we think of a tree, but it can grow into a pretty big shrub. And it was the biggest shrub that was planted in first century Jewish gardens or farms. So he's speaking figuratively here. We've got to give him a break. He's a poet, right? I'm trying to go too far into, into this kind of stuff. So what is he talking about here? He's saying what we typically judge, dualistically again, right, as insignificant, this tiny little seed that gets hidden in the ground, what we judge as insignificant is exactly what is sacred, exactly what is spectacular, exactly what is miraculous. Mystery, paradox, all over again. And talking about things just showing up when I needed them, Mike Griffin over here sent me a uh, kind of a daily devotional thing that, that he just thought was great. I thought it was great too. And it sat there on my desktop until just now. And it popped in and said, this is perfect, because it's called the sacred ordinary. Just a little excerpt. Despite his growing disillusionment with the church, Vincent van Gogh maintained his belief in God and our ability to commune with him. He believed God could be found not merely within the hallowed halls of churches and cathedrals, but also sitting at home next to a fire, like the old man in his sketch he described as drawing near to eternity's gate. The perspect this perspective is what I've come to appreciate about Vincent and his art. He believed in encountering the sacred in the ordinary and not just in the spectacular. Isn't that what Jesus' incarnation teaches us? The Lord of all creation is to be discovered in the humble person of a Galilean carpenter. The inability of the religious leaders to recognize God's presence in the ordinary appearance of Jesus is ultimately why they rejected and killed him. I wonder if it's why many of us still struggle with faith. We demand God appear to us in the spectacular and overlook his presence in the ordinary. Van Gogh said, I think there is no better place for meditation than by a rustic hearth in an old cradle with a baby in it. The sacred, hidden in the ordinary, as we judge it, right? What is ordinary? The Lord, hidden in a humble carpenter, Paradox. This is the paradox. Are we willing to let it stand? Moving on to Matthew, just a little further down in the chapter, still 13, starting at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Here we go again. Something hidden, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
And then again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The sacred, hidden in the ordinary, just a field, just a marketplace, right? And yet the only way to possess that treasure is to sell everything that you own. Let it go. To grow up and out of the limiting speaking, thinking, reasoning like a spiritual child. This is where these sayings are taking us. Are we willing to move and to grow and to move in different directions? I have a friend, good friend, that um, asked me to coffee every once in a while. And so we went to coffee and He's been processing his spiritual journey for quite a while now, years, in fact. But he still has triggers that come and grab him and pull him sideways. Don't we all have those? You know, even though we think we put a stake through the heart of that particular thing, and then here it is again, you know, dogging us. And he was asking again, and I know he's asked me this before, maybe he forgot, about the section where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He wanted to know what that meant. Okay, what's that about? I asked him, so why would this passage be bothering you then? And he said, well, it it sounds exclusionary. You know, that without accepting Jesus, as we understand him theologically, you know, mentally, rationally, that we're going to go to hell forever and all for all eternity. He says, I just can't believe. He said, does that mean that every Buddhist is going to hell? I said, I just, I can't understand. That doesn't make any sense to me. I can't believe that God would do that. And so I asked him, well, if you're so convinced of that, that that is not the God that Jesus is showing you, the God that you have encountered in your own life, then why is this bothering you so much? Why is it so troubling? And he stopped for a second. He said, well, I'm not sure. He said, well, I think it's because I was taught one way for so long, right? And then he said, I think I'm looking for some certainty. Ah, there it is. Intolerance of uncertainty. That's what it comes down to. We think we know something about God, that we've experienced something about God, but that old teaching, that old certainty from another side triggers us and pulls us off center. Of course, then he asked me, was Jesus God? (laughs) Easy questions right over coffee. Is Jesus really God? He wanted to reserve, I'm sorry, he wanted to resolve these paradoxes. All of us do, you know. Is Jesus both God and man? How would Jesus be both God and man? Is Jesus both inclusive and exclusive? How could that possibly be? It has to be one or the other. They can't both be right, right? Let's choose. Let's judge. One is right, one is wrong. Then it gets very simple. Well, how would Jesus answer those questions? What would he do with them? Well, let's take a look at John 14, where they were actually asked of him. This is the uh, three or four chapter Last Supper that John gives us. A lot of detail in the Last Supper that we don't get from the Synoptic Gospels. And so right in the middle, Jesus starts to let them know that he's going to be leaving He's not going to be with them much longer. He says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. Ah, Thomas says to him, Lord, 
We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And then Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? What's going on here? Jesus is going away. He knows he's going away. He's trying to let them down easy. He's trying to give them a heads up on what's coming here. But what he's doing also is creating a contradiction, creating a paradox in their minds. Because for all these years, they believed him to be the Messiah, the Mashiach. But then the way that they understood Mashiach, searching for Messiah in the light, where the light is good, outside the house. He was going to be this political leader, this warrior king who was going to throw out the Romans, reestablish a sovereign nation of Israel, and then they were going to be able to sit at the right and left hand of power and actually lord it over others. This is what they believed. This was the Messiah that they were going for. But now he's leaving. See, this creates an unbearable tension. The disciples are trying to relieve it with certainty. Show us this way. Show us this Father, and then we'll be okay again. We'll have all of this uncertainty relieved. But he says, you already know the way. Because if you know me, if you have experienced my love, my presence, not understand it, but know it in that intimate experience that that word means in Aramaic and Hebrew, then you will know this way of growing up past these rational, dualistic thought processes because they are the only way to the Father. The only way you're going to experience my Father, the only way you're going to experience your God is when you let go of that type of thinking and are ready to move into the mystery, which is the only place a human being can intersect with the Almighty, is in that non-rational place of mystery. Jesus, as a way has to be accessible to everyone. It has to be. Or God's love is not real. God's love is not absolute. We're not talking about Jesus as a way and the only way to the Father as a theological, rational concept. We're talking about Jesus as the experience of moving into the Father's presence. That's what he's talking about. And then to Philip, he says, you know, you already know the Father because you know me. Maybe you don't know me well enough yet, but if you know me, if you again know my love and my presence, it's identical to the Father. There is nothing else to look for. Jesus and the Father are one. They are absolutely identical. How are they identical? How did this come to be? I don't know. And nobody else does either. And if someone tells you they do, they're selling something. Because nobody knows. Nobody can parse this mystery. But they are the same. They are identical. It's a mystery. It's a paradox how this can take place. We can't know. We can't be certain in our childish spiritual language and thought. But we can experience all of this when the perfect comes, when that moment comes. Jesus is identical to the Father. I can know the Father 
by following and experiencing Jesus on his way. That's what Jesus is telling us. So, does that answer my friend's questions? Yes and no. It's another paradox. It's another contradiction. We want desperately to fall down one side or another. Can we let it stand and experience what it has for us? We all need to learn to lean on our convictions that become born out of the perfect presence that we can experience in our moments of prayer and worship and contemplative practice. What we've experienced of God's perfect love right here, right now, in each other, in prayer, in nature, is everything. It's all here already. It's all now. It's all the conviction we will ever need hidden in the most ordinary details of life. Jesus told us right where to look, showed us the way by showing himself as open and vulnerable and hidden among the great rulers of his time. And he's telling us, if we can't find it there, if we can't find God's presence in the ordinary details, we're not going to find it in the clouds, we're not going to find it in church, we're not going to find it in books. How could God possibly answer the questions that we ask and the way that we ask them? How could God possibly give us the certainty that we require? He couldn't. He can't. He won't. Here's how he answered Job. Take a listen. You all know the story of Job? By the end of Job... After all the questions that have been asked and all the debates that have gone down about God's nature and theodicy and the problem of evil and everything that is, that is raised in that book, why do bad things happen to good people? Where is God when those bad things happen? At the very end, the Lord speaks to Job from a whirlwind, from a storm. And he says this, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set bolt and door. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no further. And here your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens? 
when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? And this goes on for two more chapters. Some of the most beautiful poetry that you can imagine. This is God's answer to Job. This is God's answer to us. Some things can't be anything other than a mystery. They just have to be in this life. Again, not something that we can't know, not something that we can't understand, but something that we will be knowing and understanding endlessly. We will spend eternity knowing these mysteries more and more. If we consent to growing up and growing out of the limitations of our spiritual childhood. Let's pray. Father, this isn't necessarily good news for us. We really do want certainty. We really do want answers that we can rationally understand. But thank you for being straight with us. Thank you for telling us the way that it is. Thank you for showing us that the only way through is to embrace these seeming opposites in our lives. And stay on the hot seat long enough to know what they have for us. To find the wisdom that is in those hidden depths. And to learn more and more to see the sacred in the ordinary in every little thing that happens and realize that you are there. And that's where we start. Always there in this moment, in this breath. We're grateful, Father. We're grateful that this is the way it is, even if it's difficult for us. Help us more and more to take steps that will bring us closer and closer to you. And never let us forget, we can only do this because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.